Welcome to Worldwide Waste, a podcast about how digital is killing the planet and what to do about it. This session is with Erica Hall, who is one of the best thinkers on digital design that I've come across. Erica is the co-founder of Mule Design and author of two books, Just Enough Research and Conversational Design. In her design consulting practice, she helps organisations ask deeper questions and work more collaboratively across disciplines. Her ongoing personal project is identifying new ways to visualise the ethical dimensions of design decisions. I started off by asking Erica if in the last 10 years we've ruined web design and if we have, what do we do about it? I don't know if we've ruined it completely, but it's uh, it's pretty bad. It, it is pretty bad. You know, this is this is something I notice myself when you know I'm just because I'm I'm extremely online and using the web all the time, and everything is is really really slow. Uh, so yeah, in some cases, pretty unusable. So to answer your first question, it, it's, I mean, it's kind of wrecked. You know, compared to I remember when I was first. Working online, just the uh, bandwidth was very low, and that was the issue. And it seems like we've sort of come back around there. Um, and how do, how do we fix it? I mean, like step one, I think, is just socializing how, how bad it is, right? Because I really think a lot of people, a lot of this goes to how fast organizations are producing things and they're they're optimizing for a set of metrics that don't necessarily have to do with page weight or download time they have these other metrics and i think it will take some uh, awareness raising because i think a lot of the choices are um just in a lot of cases people being sloppy not optimizing images a lot of it has to do with the tools like these sorts of considerations aren't reflected in the design tools we're using. There's nothing necessarily to, to tell you um, uh, to provide guidelines around uh, page weight. Like, like if you look for it, you can find out like, Oh, this, uh, you know, this, this image is a giant, like hundred make image or something like that. But there's not like a quick check. Like we have accessibility tools that will sort of give you an accessibility check and people aren't even using those. So I think the first step is finding a way to make it easy to just check yourself and also provide more of a standard. So people even know like what they should be aiming for, right? Like, Oh, let's try to get page weight down to X. And I think if we have at least that awareness and could measure it, people could start at least having something to aim for amid all their other choices. Yeah, and it's it's funny, isn't it? You know, because we all kind of know, at least at some level, that faster pages are good and that, you know, that that this is a mm-hmm. foundational thing. I don't know who I was saying to, but it's, it's like, we, you know, we think we're designing a Ferrari, but for, but for the customer, <laughs> it feels like a tractor. You know, like... You know, we we're, we 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 have this image 
as web designers that were de designing Ferraris, but the actual experience is like a, a tractor. When you put your when you put your foot on the accelerator, the max speed is like you know forty miles an hour. You know that that that, and yet all the forces seem to be to the bigger web page, you know, the big, more JavaScript, more this, more that, more custom fonts, you know, all the forces The, you know, if, if the web is a, a galaxy or, a, you know, an area, all the forces are, are moving towards the bigger, the bigger and the bigger and the bigger and the more and the more. Uh, so the, all the cultural and design forces and how do we shift that, you know, that, you know, I want an option for 80 different fonts or, you know, I, you know, I want these huge images. I want, I want this, I want that, I want, I want the other. And, and we lose sight of these critical foundational things that, that should be like, you know, basics at basic camp. I, I mean, besides, besides just making people aware of it, it, it's also, cause you know, I, I, do a lot of work on the the research side and i can tell you just it's not just for myself what it matters to everybody speed is the most important factor in the experience like how fast do i get to what i need this is why google has uh you know one of the reasons they've they've dominated is because that's such a, a satisfying experience that you immediately get a huge number of results and they even reflect back to you uh you know what fraction of a second it took to deliver this huge number of results and that's really satisfying and when you go back and you do another search it's like it's so fast and it feels so responsive and that's a that's a significant part of google's success is that experience and just how instantaneous it feels and i think uh, a lot of organizations undervalue that sense of of speed and lightness and how just because the frustration, the mounting frustration, whether it's like you're uh, you're waiting for a page to load or or trying to find the one piece of information and all the complexity that will really help you, that just that's like this mounting frustration of dealing with the web. And if you can have, something load very, very quickly, no matter what device you're using, that just removes uh, all of this frustration and like sense of powerlessness that your customer or your user has. So it's this huge benefit, but people don't really, that we're, it's, yeah, we're not talking about it because we're talking about the, the design options and the custom font options. And, and those are great, but I, I really feel like when we think about design, we have to think deeper. And part of it is that the, like the whole conversation around design has gotten really, um, really shallow. That seems to be the case. And, and this, you know, the absolute essence, it seems that in digital, we can get lost very easily. Like it's, it's, it's like, you know, if, if we had a knife and, uh, you know, you've designed a knife and uh, you bring it to testing or whatever and, and, and it won't even cut butter. And and you you say, you know, ah yeah, forget about its cutting. Look look at the beautiful design on the handle. And actually there's four different handles you can use for this knife. You know, and and, and uh but you know, and the and the idea that it can't cut is not even taken seriously. Like it's not like 
ah, yeah, so what? You're, well, what do you expect it to do? You know, it's like we know, you know, all the data is there. Yeah, I do quite a bit of research as well and observing, and it's so critically important. Like it's a foundational type of thing that that you have to do, and yet it doesn't penetrate into web management. And, you know, it's, it's this strange thing I notice about digital in general that it seems to be a world where it's incredibly easy to get your priorities extraordinarily wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I, I wonder, is there any way to found that or to reestablish basic management principles that it's a knife, it needs to be able to cut, you know, it's, you know, it's a car, it needs to be able to go at least 70 miles an hour, you know, it mm-hmm. needs to be able to do really basic things. And yet it's it's very difficult to, is it marketing that's causing this? Is it development? Is it, does it who who are the... Who are the the drivers of the forces within these organizations that says we don't care about speed? I don't I don't know that it's anybody necessarily saying we don't care about speed. I think it's uh, it's not really thinking about uh, what in any critical way what organizations are optimizing for, right? It's just nobody's nobody's necessarily pushing back on performance in that way. I think in part. Because, like I said, people are moving so quickly. Everybody gets their uh, anxieties or hopes or desires or metrics into the process. And I, I think there's an absence of that strategic role that kind of uh, oversees the, the priority setting and helps with the trade-offs. And I, I think the reason for this is because design has gone in-house so, so much in the past 10 years. Like it used to be that a lot of design came from a, a, a strategic external agency. And then, you know, then businesses recognized that this sort of design and development work was a core business process. So they pulled it in-house. And I think what they lost, I think it meant that what they gained, they gained in sort of internal operational efficiency. But what they lost was that strategic function who kind of looks across and says, okay, what are we optimizing for and why? So I think there's sort of an, an, like the executive function of the brain that's been missing. And I think that's one of the reasons why this bloat has occurred because there's nobody sort of looking across everything and saying, well, uh, are we uh, really being efficient, are we really optimizing for the right things? It's like companies are very, very reactive and uh, and they chase the new best shiny thing. And then of course, the, the people who are talking about uh, branding and storytelling have a lot of influence because they're good at storytelling, right? And so the people who are the best at storytelling can often shift priorities because other people who might uh, have other concerns aren't as good as advocating for them. Yeah, it's very interesting there about the loss of the um, management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we used to call it management. You know, back in the day, you know, it used to be called management. You know, you setting priorities, etc. But you know, the the latest gizmos. Yeah, the, I mean, it's still that. It's interesting. You just 
reminded me of these conversations I'm having uh, at the moment. I'm, I'm doing a lot of work with WHO and and, mm-hmm. and, and governments and and uh, and people have been telling me about about disastrous chatbot implementations that that uh, are occurring, but that the forces within the organization are oh we have to have a chatbot we because because you know you're not you're not witted if you don't have a chatbot uh, and that you know they're telling me oh these are disaster because it's so hard to get these things right mm-hmm. you know and it's so easy to get them wrong but the management the senior people don't care they just care that it, we have a chatbot and you know you think oh wow you know we're still driven by the latest mm-hmm. techie gizmo i don't know if you've had any experience of 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 chatbots and etc but you know from what i'm hearing they're they're pretty much disaster zones oh oh yeah i mean that's that's one of the reasons why uh i i wrote my second book conversational design was to caution organizations against just running towards implementing a chatbot, thinking that it's a more humane interface and a more conversational interface. So that was my, uh, and it still kind of is, uh, one of the things that I, I talk about and work with organizations about a lot is, uh, is exactly, it's exactly that. It's like, oh, everything needs a, a chatbot because somehow that makes it easier for people without thinking like this. It just, the big theme and, you know, like talking to people about using technology to better serve people, those of us who've been in this job for a while, we just see how um, how, how when the thinking gets shallow and too fast, like you just rush to something that appears to solve the problem and is, is shiny and other people have it. And it can be very difficult to get uh, people who've latched onto a solution like that to drop it if you haven't done the work in advance to set the standards for like what makes a good experience what actually makes a conversational experience what are we optimizing for you can't have those conversations after the horse is out of the barn absolutely and you know connected with that is is you you said about fast and the, the more i think about digital the more i think that digital is is speed like it's like it's like a drug. It's like it put it 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 accelerates behavior by by. There's something in mm-hmm. digital that is 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 speed and 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 people get up at such a speed that they can't think rationally anymore. They can't decide. They they feel they just have to keep rushing around uh, in in their activities and 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 that. We we lose the, the the most basic things of perspective and any sort of long term planning. You know, there's sense we're just caught up on this on this drug that's called digital. And 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 how do how do we get off speed? How do we get off digital a bit? Well, I, I would say the drug uh, isn't actually digital. The drug is uh, is capital. Because digital on its own, like I'm, I'm reading a really, uh, a, a really interesting deep book called "The Age of Surveillance Capitalism" right now, and the author argues that uh, nothing that we talk about with respect to the very large 
digital companies, you know, the, the Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, none of that is, uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like none of that necessarily happened, right? It was all based on choices and, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't predetermined and it's not inherently, uh, something about technology. It's choices people made. And the reason people made those choices is, uh, is because all of this money became available that was easier to work with than other kinds of money. And, uh, and that sort of capital investment requires a fast return. And so when you, when you look at why organizations are moving so quickly, it's not just the digital, it's moving quickly to get a very large return on, uh, on capital. And, and that's kind of what's underpinning so many of these choices where it's like when you take a company and you're like, well, what do we do with digital? And you could say, well, we could, uh, and a big part of it is like, is speed. And a lot of the customer can, the conversation around customer convenience has to do with like, wow, I have, you know, a million choices and I could have any one of those choices brought to me instantly because of the way that, um, you know, the, the, digitally powered logistics can get something to me, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the imperative comes from the investment, right? Not necessarily from the customer side. Maybe capital and digital is like crack cocaine. It's a kind of a mix. You know, the two of them coming together, blow your head off. Yes. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, but that capital idea, I think, yeah, is a is a fascinating and that, that's an accelerant. So it's, it's two accelerants uh, in, in the process. And just can I connect with that? Um, well, connected mm-hmm. or not, I'm not. Jason Fried uh, um, was uh, uh, tweeting here recently about the, the whiplash of group chat. A kind of another maybe example of of hey we can all chat we can all do things fast we can all respond instantaneously you, you know that 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 mm-hmm. um, uh, the likes of Slack or, or Teams or Microsoft Teams deliver and you know is that about producing mm-hmm. more getting conversations or getting I, I, I think that's maybe another example of this underlying fluidity of of the sense of. You know, somebody said to me, showing me one of these related tools, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, and said, and you can you can create a section if you want. You can create a category, no problem, any category you want. You know, I was thinking, you know, we don't build houses that way. We don't, you know, come in with your architect, and the architect says, ah, oh, yeah, just just here's this app, and just <laughs> create a room, whatever room you want. It doesn't matter. You can call it anything. Doesn't it? That's a kind of the, hey, you can set up a group and have the, all these discussions. It's a kind of, here's this tool with all this potential and the organizing principles and the refinement or thoughtfulness seem to be, you know, not considered or or what really matters is that you can run a hundred chats concurrently or something like that. Yeah. And it's not, uh, you know, it's just a tool. And I think we see this over and over and over again, where there's a tool uh, and the tool is uh, at first it's, it's the next thing. And so a, a lot of people seize onto that and say, Oh, this is just how we work now. Like, Oh, we have, like, you know, I, I have Slack. I love Slack. I use Slack. But to me, like, I have no problem uh, ignoring 
what's going on, you know, and I will check in on the Slack. I don't feel, and I've worked with some clients who treat it like, uh, like if you, if you use something through Slack that if you communicate through Slack, you, uh, you have to respond immediately. And that's the expectation. And, uh, and so I think it comes, a lot of it, 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 like it all goes back to the fact that interactions and work processes need to be designed and facilitated. And what's happening is we're letting the tools drive the process as opposed to having somebody uh, in a very considered manner say, oh, we use these tools for this purpose. And this is something that, you know, we had a conversation uh, with with Jason Freed about this sort of thing. And I, I, I love him and I love the rest of the people at uh, Basecamp because they talk about this a lot. They talk about their way of working, which is not taking the capital accelerant. They talk about how they use writing and they only use chat very sparingly and they use chat for socializing. And I think that's why people really like it because it has that feeling of we're all around the water cooler together. But you can't just shove your whole business into the water cooler. Right. Uh, you know, And, and it, yeah, so I think what's really missing is is human facilitation. And I've seen this even with, you know, meetings where companies are like, oh, our, our meetings are, are garbage and we never get anything done and we're always in meetings. And then I talk to them about this. And if I'm working with a client about how they facilitate their meetings and like nobody's in charge because people feel there's a sense that uh, everything self-organizes. Yeah. And there's nobody to say, okay, in our organization, we use like we use chat for this. We use writing, like like posting um, on an intranet or on Basecamp or something for this. We use email for this, and it's just it's setting out those principles so that you don't just put everything onto one tool and let that tool like drive your process. But that you know that's been the way in my experience for I've been doing this twenty five years, and mm-hmm. you know it's like. You, you you don't go onto a football field. I used to play football and Irish type of, and you don't self spontaneously self organize if you bring fifteen people on. Yeah, you don't go onto a sailing boat and just spontaneously self organize. <laughs> it doesn't happen anywhere else, but it's expected to happen in mm-hmm. collaboration and in group. You know that this will all. You know, yeah, you you, you know, you just set up any group you want, and it'll all just come together uh and and in my experience what it tends to come together is in is in a big pile of crap Mm -hmm. in a a lot of organizations of these humongous quantities of content generation and and but as you say it's a it's a it's a real battle to have discipline and organization and facilitation in into the mix yeah absolutely and when you do you take something like another Another tool I would say that's that's over applied or misapplied is the the sprint, the design sprint that came out of Google. And that that can be a tool to get people together and concentrate on something uh, for a very brief period of time. And there's a lot of facilitation around that. But because it promises, again, the speed that everyone's hooked on, all of a sudden you're seeing people replacing all aspects of the design process with a sprint. And just using that term not to mean what the people who created it meant, which was a, a really contained process for a specific purpose to achieve a certain kind of breakthrough, but they're just shoving every kind of work, 
every kind of design work, problem solving into a, a one, two, three week period and calling that a sprint. Like I've seen this so often. It's like, oh, we'll just do that as a sprint without really thinking about what that means. Well, yeah, it's like I, I've often said, you can sprint in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, get get to the wrong place real fast. Get to the wrong, you know. Let's let's do this wrong really quickly. Yeah, you know, in 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 the process. But speed and you know a lot of this stuff that I've been looking about the impact on the environment. Of course, there's there's laws of speed that the faster you become the more energy intensive you become mm-hmm. uh, and that you know that that you know speed has a big as an exponential cost in energy once it gets up above certain levels of speed and the, the the general thinking of of say you know digital and the and the environment and the impact of speed and the impact of these you've you've written about hazard mapping and these sorts of issues if, if you were looking at digital from its, so to speak, impact on the environment, or I don't know, I've been calling it the Earth experience. Maybe lots of other people have called it uh, that as well. That that how would you see, you know, these sorts of things moving into a, a hazard map from design and uh, and the Earth experience? Well, well, I think when you when you map out when when you take the time to make because the whole point of of diagramming and mapping and making the schematics is to make the invisible parts of the digital experience visible. And so when you map out, say, the the flow or the architecture of your application or your site, you can note the places that have a high risk for having these environmental impacts, right? You can note the places where it's like, oh, if we don't, if we aren't careful in our design here, like in the same way that you would with any other sort of ethical hazard, you can say, okay, if we don't um, really think very carefully about the rules of interaction among our users in this spot, uh, then we we have a risk of facilitating uh, harassment or abuse. In the same way, you say, okay, when we look at how we design this page, we have a big risk of uh, using far more energy. Right. This is this is an area where, you know, you might indicate like, oh, we need to have a good brand experience here. Or we're really thinking about videos or or the use of photos or imagery. And you could actually just note that risk on the the sitemap or the wireframe or the schematic. And just by making calling it out and making it visible, then you make that part of the design problem solving. Like constraints make people better designers. Right. And I really feel like we haven't seeing these constraints, you know, when you talk about um, uh, business and the environment, uh, you know, there's the concept of externalities, the costs that your business doesn't really bear. And I think that's what's going on here is it's very easy, you know, with like uh, storage and the like being so cheap, like all these things that used to be expensive in the early days of the web, uh, like like storage and offsite storage and server space and processing power. So everything's so cheap. And so people aren't feeling these costs. So you have to write those costs down to make them visible to the people making the decisions. And then once you've done that, you can take them into consideration. And it probably, it just, that's what design is, is solving those sorts of problems. 
but you have to acknowledge them in order to solve them. And I think once you acknowledge them, you can find creative ways. Like you can design things that are perfectly uh, yeah, beautiful and interesting and exciting if you take the time to take the environmental impact as a constraint and note it as a potential risk, a potential hazard, uh, you know, that, that you have to think about. I've been thinking for quite a while because most of my career has been about uh, championing the customer experience and then uh, or the user experience or whatever you want to call it. And then, you know, it struck me mm-hmm. a while ago that, you know, maybe a year or two ago that that in many ways, the customer experience, the modern concept of, of the customer user experience is often a very, a very environmentally damaging type of model that, that if we look at, say, um, ret- returns, e-commerce uh, returns, uh, in the US mm-hmm. alone, there's something like 200 million trees cut down every year just to deal with e-commerce returns. And that e-commerce returns Ugh. run at an average of three times what in a physical store the return rate would be. And, you know, so much of our design would be, how, how do we make it easy? And I remember, yeah, do you remember Zappos and how, you know, years ago, and we said, oh, and they make it so easy to oh, return yeah. shoes. And I used to be thinking, oh, they're brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. they're so clever, uh, th- those guys. But not alone yeah. when you think of returns, is that trees cut down, often the shoes that get returned can't be reused. You know, they end up in a dump or, you know, a significant percentage right. of, you know, the world that of returns is not reusable or, 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 or does not get reusable. So is there increasing conflicts between making it easy for the user customer often is putting a stress on the world that 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 human growth is is our debt <laughs> to be to be dark about it that our growth depends <laughs> on species decline yeah. on resource depletion that we're, we're we're getting into a point where actually you know we're making the earth sick uh in a lot of our pra- and and a lot of these things that's giving it this great wonderful experience is actually giving the earth uh, a sickness and a, 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 a tremendous stress. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. And I think <clears throat> a lot of the, the shift in mindset, like we talk about the user or the customer. And I think what we forget in all of that and in like all aspects of uh, especially digital design is that none of us are really is- isolated individuals, but we treat we our vocabulary treats everybody as one individual who isn't connected to not just like a whole social network, but you know the whole like web of life on the planet. However, you want to um, you want to talk about that. So I think just shifting our language uh, will really help with that. But the problem is. When you think about the success of a business, it still comes down to, well, one person has to get their credit card like out of their wallet or have it saved in their browser or whatever. And that's still how we measure business success. And so I think some of those metrics have to change. You know, we need we need more of the regulation because businesses aren't going to do this on their own. Because as long as a business is in um, this, this competitive uh, consumer society environment and 
as long as they they're you know they see themselves in competition for the customer with other people, the businesses are going to do the thing that makes the customer feel good and feel happy and feel loyal. And that sort of thing like, oh, just return it. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Like that's the store people are going to shop at. It's like Zappos did the free returns because that was in the early, early days of e-commerce and shoes are something that has to fit. And there was no way to sell shoes uh, online without offering that return. The business would have been a non-starter. Like nobody would have bought a pair of shoes if they think, well, I'm stuck with this you know, $100 pair of shoes if if they don't fit. Um, but now, yeah, I think we're in a place where it's like, how do we start to change these processes uh, where we can deliver something that feels like a good competitive experience, but also, uh, you know, doesn't destroy the planet. And and I think there there is a segment of of customers who do want to make better choices, but it's a question of how do you make the better choices obvious and how do you make the better choices easy? And that that takes some leadership and that takes some vision. And that takes going back to what we were talking about earlier, not being beholden uh, to your investors. Yeah, the 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 capital issue. Um and you know design one of the you know ideas I had, you know, looking at, say, the element of uh, not so much returns, but just delivery, that if, if you get, if you're looking for one hour delivery or one day delivery, that that's significantly more environmentally damaging because, um, you know, the truck will probably not be as full, uh, they'll probably be driving mm-hmm. faster, you're going to have to have a higher stock, uh, you know, to meet this this immediate demand. So thinking that, you know, if you were on a page and it said, you know, one day delivery or three day delivery, those were the options. But instead of calling it three day delivery, you called it like green delivery, you know, that, you know, that we begin to think about the the things that stress, because if you take three day delivery, well, you know, smaller stock levels, more optimized truck, generally Mm -hmm. more efficient. But any ideas around there that you know how do we begin to design design pauses into not so much that this page should be slow downloading you know because but that <laughs> we can somehow slow people rather than speeding people up all the time and wanting them you know mm-hmm. oh you do want it in an hour and most times we don't even use it when we get it for three days like at least you know, in a lot of situations, mm-hmm. we, we get this thing fast and we don't use it. So we could have waited, you know, mm-hmm. but that that we kind of that waiting is like like a good meal, like that somehow, you know, I don't know if th- there's ways we can begin to design to take it a little bit more slowly and we'll actually get there just as well and with probably a better overall experience. It's not just the environment, but we're the the really rapid delivery has immense implications for the safety of our streets. With you know the trucks rushing around to meet these uh, really accelerated schedules, and the like the the human experience of like having to work to meet those deliveries, like to work in a warehouse, uh, 
you know, there's a, there's a real, uh, it's really inhumane, like the, the inhumanity of the working conditions is directly connected to all of these things, like rushing, rushing, rushing. And, uh, yeah, cause I remember like when I was a kid and if you mail ordered something, uh, the time promised was six to eight weeks, which when you're a child is an eternity. And, uh, you know, if you wanted a specialty item from a catalog, you're like, well, six weeks from now, it might show up in the mail. And now we do have these expectations of, of it, it being instantly like at your doorstep. And yeah, so I, I think a couple of things have to happen. One, yeah, if you, if you reflect the choices, I think, um, uh, having some sort of, like really high premium because it's it's kind of like we have to go to the the carrot and stick way where it's like yes this is the greener way but there also has to be uh a downside right there has to be kind of a, a penalty for choosing the less environmentally friendly version and so i'd say one day shipping costs i mean they're usually higher but they have to be really really higher because it goes back to i, I think something um, i think you were talking about this the fact that like the most affluent countries have the uh the highest impact on the environment like we really focus on oh these these countries uh have have really large and growing populations and so that's bad for the planet but it's like those of us who are more affluent are the worst at this and the problem is that the penalties uh don't matter as much to people like if you can afford to pay an extra 20 dollars for shipping who cares but so those are probably the people where you can you can uh work with the virtue signaling, right? So I don't know if it's like how you get people, uh, you kind of reward them for for better behaviors um, in this whole process. It's like, how do you take the people who uh, like the, the 90th percentile people who probably have the greatest impact because they're ordering the most, they're ordering things the fastest and really think about them as a user or customer group and say, how can we incentivize just those people, like the the worst offenders in all of this, um, at the same time as we work on regulation and all of these other things, how do, how do we would like feed into the way that people want to think of themselves as more virtuous and, and look good in front of their peers, you know, so maybe it's like an environmental influencer kind of thing. Like, I know that sounds a little gross, but it's worth a try. Absolutely. I think, you know, these, it, it, it needs to be um, twin approaches. Uh, I think, I think culturally in a way has to come first because it seems like politics follows the culture rather than creates the culture or creates the mood mm-hmm. or, the, or the sentiment in, in some ways that, you know, there has to be that it's, this isn't fashionable, like, you know, uh, to, uh, to be buying five times as much clothes and to hardly ever wear them and 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 these sorts of behaviors that 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 are kind of are are, are are a reflection of getting it now you know when you have to really think about mm-hmm. things maybe you buy less but looking at the future and because you've talked about this and given talks about the future and you know and around i i think certainly something that i found if you look at you know, post uh, World War, there was a there was a genuine boom, and things really improved, uh, and living standards massively improved, say from the forties uh, till till the early seventies. But from the seventies onwards, 
you know, things haven't really improved that much for a lot of people, certainly mm. in the United States or, you know, relatively speaking, incomes have have flatlined for the middle class. And, you know, the super rich have got phenomenally richer. Uh, mm-hmm. But most people like the, the American, uh, the U.S., uh, life expectancy is in decline, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and is five years lower on average than most other, uh, you know, so, so-called advanced g- countries. So we, we ask this question, what, what good is Google and Facebook and Amazon and, you know, the, uh, actually all this stuff and, and, and we still like seem to have a, a kind of a, a gig economy, like, a, mm-hmm. you know, and, People really struggling with very little savings, with like so. We ask these core questions about, you know, technology a hundred years ago created electricity, you know, before that created railways, created the motor car. Yeah, we got the PC, we got the smartphone, but it didn't stop the pandemic. It didn't. It didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it hasn't made the society richer as a society in many ways. Like. Mm-hmm. Do, do we need a real <coughs> questioning of all this stuff that's coming out of Silicon Valley? And is it really making the world better or just mm-hmm. making a few a few geeks really richer? Yeah, I think I mean, that's a that's a fantastic question to ask. And I, I think in some ways, uh, it, like it, it really it really goes back to. Uh, having people who are who do have a platform to be raising these questions because it it, it it is it is so easy to get hooked on this like convenience and knowledge is at our fingertips but what we've found and this is the thing that's most interesting to me right all knowledge is is available like all human knowledge roughly is available instantly at our fingertips like never before and I think that's a huge benefit but at the same time, we're not taking advantage of it. Like just what you said with the pandemic, like we have better knowledge and more interconnected knowledge, but it's it's the politics and the power relationships that get in the way of that, right? So the misinformation gets out there. It's these. So I think we have a bad understanding and maybe a too optimistic understanding of human nature. So when we address these problems, I think there's some people have an idea that, oh, if the information is just out there, people will use it without really understanding human nature and the, and the way that relationships and, and power affect who trusts what source of information. So I think this is actually the biggest problem we have to solve now is the misinformation problem, right? The decision-making problem. It's like, how do we help people think critically and make good decisions with the available information? Because you're totally right that we look at uh, like where society is. And I, th- I think on some measures, like things, things have gotten better, but exactly wages have stagnated. Like it's amazing the fact that in America, the, um, the minimum wage in the country, it's higher in the States and it's, it's much higher in San Francisco uh, is $7 and 50 cents. When I was in high school, the minimum wage was like three fifty or something like that. So it's, it's barely gone up relative to everything else. The cost of college has gone up and so much of it has to do, like it has to go back to the fact that we're not taxing these companies. Cause what, what will give us that better quality of living? It's being able to get at those profits. And so that's, 
that's but it's hard because capital really moves across borders very easily. Yeah, and this is showing up in our real estate markets, like people can't afford housing because there's so many empty homes. And I know this is true of every major city in the world where uh, investors, international investors come in, they buy property and hold it empty. And so I think there's so much we need to do with taxation and regulation and government that seems tangentially related to this idea of, uh, you know, digital having this huge impact and accelerating the degradation of the planet, but it's totally connected, right? No, very few designers want to talk about tax policy, but they're totally related. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the period of the 50s to the 70s was a very high tax period. You know, it was, you know, uh, when when the great society, you know, so to speak, you know, the, the, it often connects up, but you know that's another another debate. But you were saying about misinformation, and, and I think absolutely. But just information, if we, you know, more data has been created in the last two years than in all of previous history, and yet we were wholly unprepared for the pandemic. So either the data was mm-hmm. out there, which it probably was, you know, an okay China, you know, misled in 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 the early days, but certainly from from January onwards, you know, it was pretty clear something was happening, and and it, it it was it was coming, and you know, most countries most countries didn't weren't able to deal with that data, or you know, didn't. I've seen so many situations where mm-hmm. people are becoming in, incapacitated by big data rather than mm-hmm. you know th- th- that it, it's it's so overwhelming. Uh, and there's so much low-level stuff being collected that it's, it, we, we, you know, I know information overload has been a cliche for 20 years, but, you know, how when we're creating zettabytes of data, like zettabytes, they're unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a zettabyte, I, I calculated that a zettabyte, if we printed out a zettabyte, it would require 20 trillion trees. You know, yeah. and we, there, there's three trillion trees on the planet, so we'd we'd need twenty trillion, and and that by about twenty thirty, we'll have over two thousand zettabytes of data. This this is data, this is quantities beyond imagination, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, this seems to be this our our production culture that, and how do we step back from that because. It's not making us cleverer. I don't. I, in many ways, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a that's a really hard question because it, it um, there's this idea, and this is something that I I fight about daily. The idea that more data is equivalent to more insight, and uh, we know, like we know, like we look at what's happened with the pandemic, and it, the reason it caught us by surprise is because there are people whose power depends on misinformation. And it's been those leaders who haven't been able to deal with the pandemic, right? Because if you look at California, California dealt with the situation uh, in a very reasonable manner. If you look at us uh, against the the other places in the country, and the reason we did is because, um, you know, I'm here with UCSF. UCSF uh, is a, a leading medical research facility and they saw some of the first cases of the virus they told the mayor they talked to the governor 
And we handled it, like not perfectly by any means, but very rapidly and very decisively, unlike the United States as a whole, unlike the UK. And I think that has to do with the fact that we have leaders who believe in looking for the right evidence, not the evidence that supports their position. And so that's, that's a huge part of it is, um, is when you've got more, when you've got more data, I would say, and more information floating around, it's easier for people in power to take advantage of the confusion and the, the conflicting data. So more data, I would say, creates more opportunity to create kind of a, a fog and benefit from that fog. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a great, I, you know, that, that, you know, is a side effect probably of, of the, the information revolution that it does create more opportunities to muddy up the waters or to, mm-hmm. you know, so, so that that weakness. The, uh, Taiwan um, had a, I was reading an article by the, they're doing excellent stuff in, 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 in Taiwan and they have a digital minister and they said they, they treat, um, they treat fake data like a virus. Mm-hmm. They look at it like a virus. And, and the philosophy of the virus is you got to get out in front of it really quickly and not allow it mm-hmm. to spread. So, so they've really set in, they've, they've government, of course, their government is trying to yes. be factual in this. They, they've mandates where they, if, if misinformation appears in the environment, uh, there's a mandate that it must be responded to within 20 wow. minutes. So there's a kind of, they're, they're trying to put processes in place that allows, to, because if you don't get it early, it is like a virus. If you don't get it early, you know, it exponentially go, goes through Facebook yeah. or WhatsApp. You know, you got to get it early. Otherwise, it, it, it tends to mm-hmm. flood out there and it's harder to, um, you know, to deal with. And, and, and they've, they've these wonderful models as well of, of uh, discussion, which is a kind of, anti-trolling you know I, I don't know the ins and outs of them but they, they kind of people take positions and and then they map those positions and they show maps of different mm-hmm. groups of people and how far they are apart and and there's a kind of incentives to come together by by showing the connects between the so so the visibility of the group's differences are kind of somehow done through AI intelligence or stuff. But the, the underlying principles are people are designing to bring people together rather than to bring people apart. And, and, and it would seem that so much of the design that has come out of Facebook and WhatsApp is a kind of deliberately stalking mm-hmm division so as to feed at yeah. feed the ads yeah, monster. E- exactly. And I think thinking about it like a public health problem, you know, like a virus in that sense. Like it's it's been shocking. Like we talk about viral information like it's a good thing for a long time. And that's that phrase has always sort of horrified me. But we really do need to to have a concept of public health and what is better or worse for the public health. And a virus is bad for the public health and we need to deal with it like a public health problem, not just like an individual um, wellness problem. And the same thing is true of information. Like it's like the health of our society depends on this view of information and misinformation and getting out ahead of it. But that, that takes a lot of political will and it takes a really strong, uh, uh, healthy, uh, journalism profession to, to deal with that. Um, 
because it's it's really hard. You know, once it's out there, uh, it's really really hard to to combat it. As I think a lot of people I know are dealing with their Fox News watching parents, and you know, even like you can't talk to your family members to to get them back from this degree of misinformation they've been exposed to. Yeah. So it'll it'll, it'll we have this big information design challenge. Uh, which, mm-hmm. as you say, and you're and you're right, you know, is legislative uh, will be a core element. But but in the meantime, and maybe finally, in summing up, is there anything? And and it's an impossible question in a way to what we can do <laughs> as designers, you know, to begin to, you know, even ask these questions that that creates a little bit of of societal momentum because i read this fascinating mm-hmm. study about it said that uh it, it looked at all the revolutions over the last two or three hundred years you know from the russian etc and it said once you get to about 3.5 percent of the population there's incredible potential momentum within 3.5 percent that you know below it 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 peters out changes but that 3.5% can change 95% if if properly energized but mm-hmm. anything that you know can build that de- design just thinking about you know even in the around information management that that could be good basic habits that we could begin to you know like Maybe not thinking that storing everything is good. That 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 maybe thinking a lot more about what are we collecting, why are we collecting it, rather than say, "Oh, we'll figure mm-hmm. all that later." Is is there any sort of little tips or something that you found in your life has made a, a kind of things that you do as information cleanliness habits, so to speak, that allow you manage. <laughs> Or, or deal with a client who is overloaded or what's the first things or is there any any sort of core, even just very simple uh, type of ideas or advice you'd give as, as, as a conclusion? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that the very simplest one is to just have the practice of always asking, why are we doing things this way? And is there a better way? You know, because that that takes such a small amount of time to like just remind each other to ask that question and not take things for for given because it's so easy like we as humans get into habits we all we just want to get into an easy habit we just want to settle in and stop thinking and so the more that we hold each other accountable and always ask like why are we doing this is there a better way and then if we find a a good way or something that's tr- a true fact to repeat that and to not accept the framing right? To not argue with somebody on the terms that they set. And this is this is what I tell people all the time. This is what I, how I help clients reframe problems. Because a lot of times, the first step to solving the problem is reframing it. And it's those little things where you're just like, what are we really trying to accomplish here? Um, why are we doing it this way? Is there a better way? Just like, keep a habit of asking that. And, and just, it's so simple. But but people don't even stop to do that. They're just like, oh, this is just what we do hmm. across every dimension. It's like, oh, we we save things. Like I've fought with so many clients about saving things they didn't need, you know, in terms of like old content, old files. There's this loss avoidance that people have, right? They they hold it very 
closely in their hearts are like, oh, but this is my content is an asset or these files are an asset. And you're like, why? It's like hoarding, right? It's there's something very human about that, about you don't want to just like let things go. But the more that you develop this practice of like, it's okay, like this is why you can take the Marie Kondo thing and say, thank it and like delete it. And and not, and because you can save everything ever, don't save everything ever, but acknowledge, but you have to acknowledge the pain. You can't gloss over that. You can't say, oh, just delete it. You don't need it without stopping to recognize that um, letting go of, of things like that is extremely painful for humans to do. So that's a fascinating insight. And it, it reminds me of, of uh, I met a very successful e-commerce entrepreneur one time year, years ago. And he told me, he said, every morning when I go in, go into work, one of the first things I say to my team is, OK, what are we going to delete today? <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. And that that really is uh, a great a great way to, to think about it. So not more, not more acquisition, but like get, making space, making room, you know, taking back some, some of that space. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, I've published a book called Worldwide Waste. You can find out more at jerrymcgovern.com slash www. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can join the Slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Or join the HCD newsletter, where you can win books and get updates. Subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And listen to any of our design podcasts, such as Getting Started in Design, Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion, or Power of Ten with Andy Pullane, or Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Prod Pod with Adrian Tan, and Ethnopod with Joe Hasbrook. Thanks for listening and see you next time.